Hi everyone, welcome back to Science on Trial and Error. I'm Kasia Kuzmich-Kowalska, I'm a PhD student in developmental biology and the host of this podcast. I'm so happy to see that our community is growing. Thank you for all the comments, all the love, and please keep sharing the episodes with your friends and colleagues. Also, please subscribe to Science on Trial channels to not miss on any of the future episodes. And if you want to see more of the behind the scenes and from time to time catch a sneak peek of my lab work, follow my Instagram account, Science on Trial and Error. I'm very excited to introduce this week's guest. Evelina Kaminska is a Polish scientist and science communicator. She's a PhD candidate in the field of epigenetics and chemical biology at Ludwig Maximilians Universität LMU in Munich. She is working in the group of Professor Thomas Carroll, investigating active demethylation pathways. In parallel, she is also pursuing a master's degree in endocrinology at the University of South Wales. Prior to her PhD, she got her Bachelor's of Science degree in human genetics from University of Nottingham in the UK. Evelina is a first author of several papers from her PhD work, but she's also doing a lot of freelance writing in Polish. She's been a scientific expert for Forbes Poland and she wrote two ebooks aimed at general public. One is focused on cancer and the other one on pandemics. Yeah, she's definitely a powerhouse. Evelina is very passionate about science communication and is fantastic in explaining difficult topics in a much, much simpler way. Her mission is to get people to trust scientists more. Check out her Instagram and blog to find out more. Look for Motivelina. It's been wonderful to chat with Evelina because she's one of the people who inspired me to do this podcast. I love that we get to honestly talk about challenges of working or even overworking in a competitive environment and the other challenges of the PhD life. Even though we cover a lot of difficult topics in this interview, I think you will still end up feeling motivated and inspired as Evelina shares how she actually manages to do it all and have a life. I'm not going to reveal anything more, just listen and enjoy. Please welcome Evelina Kaminska. Hi Evelina, thank you so much Hello. for being here today. I was really looking forward to this interview and I'm glad we managed to find the time to, to finally record it. Me too, seriously. It was so hard to find uh, this date that we are both available and sorry for keeping you uh, waiting for so long, but I hope it's worth it. No, absolutely no worries and I'm very glad we managed to do it right now. Where are you currently? In Munich. I'm currently working, finishing my PhD thesis and slowly packing my stuff as well because I'm leaving not too far <laughs> from, from now. Yeah, it's, it's been a very busy time for me, um, but yeah, most of the time I'm spending uh, in, in Munich at the moment. I see. So do you have already a thesis defense date set up? Uh, no, no, I don't have a set date yet uh, because at the LMU we have such a system that first of all we write the whole thesis and we give it to the professor for the final checks. Mm -hmm. Then we send it off to our reviewers and when they say they're ready, we set up a mutual date that we can all meet. 
Uh, so far, I think it's going to be an online defense, which is yeah something new and and something that is maybe a bit more difficult um, for for PhDs at the moment. <laughs> but let's see. I hope to to be finished by the end of the year. That's that's really nice. The schedule must be tight. As soon as you finish writing, then you are kind of waiting and you can wrap things up. But yeah, exactly. it must be it must be a lot. Usually what I like to ask my guests at the beginning is whether they actually listen to music at work. The idea is that after a couple of episodes, I'm thinking of um, even having a small playlist. And I was wondering if you are this kind of person that listens to music in the lab. Are you listening to podcasts? Or you have to be really without any sounds in your ears to focus? Well, it depends what I'm doing. So when I'm doing like a brainless pipetting, really something that I don't need to focus on at all, or some kind of maintenance and cleaning stuff, uh, then I listen to podcasts that, you know, people are speaking and I can actually understand them. When I do something um, more like focused, something that requires for me a lot of more attention, then I would listen to some pure music without any lyrics, which is usually something alongside jazz and classical music, because then I feel like I'm focused and nobody um, disrupts me because they see I have my headphones on. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and I'm this kind of person in the lab who always wears headphones, even if I don't listen to anything, I just don't want to be disrupted when I'm <laughs> oh, doing I so important so stuff. Well. So yeah, this is the two types of, of um, basically activities. So I have different like um, set lists, uh, playlists for, for both. Yeah, I kind of do the same. I mean, when I'm doing something very like repetitive, for example, I'm at the Kreistad, really mindlessly just moving my hands and doing the same stuff over and over, then the podcast is very easy to follow. Where I have to really focus, I'm doing like dissections, then I go for music, or I just put the headphones to really be... Not disturbed. Sure, and something that I really um, discovered back in high school, but rediscovered uh, during my PhD is the earplugs. Seriously, so at the times when I have to write a lot or I have to think, but I cannot be disrupted by any other noises. My um, productivity and work efficiency is like rising a lot. All right, so how about we start by talking about your current work, the PhD that you're finishing? I know that you're doing PhD in epigenetics, right? At You mentioned yeah. LMU, which is in, in Munich. And yeah, I would be very curious to hear more. I had a look at your papers, but honestly, they're also so chemical. It's, it's quite <laughs> impressive. So I guess this is a bit of a biochemistry-focused project. Can you, can you elaborate maybe a bit more than we go into details? Yeah, sure. So basically, it's a chemical biology, not biochemistry, which yeah. is a bit different. It's a, it's a brand new branch of science. Uh, not maybe brand new, but at least more novel than biochemistry. And we are basically using chemical tools to investigate biological processes. And uh, what does it mean is I moved from totally biological background because I studied human genetics to do my PhD in a chemistry department, which is kind of, yeah, it's a big move. And I had to literally study Masters of Organic Chemistry during my first year. Uh, but at the same time, I think this is kind of, this is the knowledge everyone needs who is working in epigenetics. Mm -hmm. Because chemistry of nucleic acids is, is something in a very biological context, but it's a chemistry, basically. So I really wanted to 
pursue my my further career uh, in a more chemical environment because I knew if I want to purely understand the meaning of epigenetics, I also need to understand the chemical processes. Coming to the lab, of course, I'm still doing more biochemistry uh, stuff in the lab, but I'm working alongside synthetic chemists. And this is a great experience to actually learn how all the nucleosides are made and how to synthesize DNA. Because when you want to work in, for example, MedCan or any kind of like drug development companies or research in future, you need to kind of have an idea of how to synthesize a drug. Yeah. And then you need to also have an idea how it would work in a, in a body, in a cell, right? And I think a lot of chemists, are synthesizing, seriously, sorry, chemists, but I think they're <laughs> synthesizing uh, compounds just for fun. And very often I, I met with situations when the chemists were synthesizing compounds. You know, they are fluorescent, but they are fluorescent at such wavelengths that we have no microscope to see it. Yeah, it's something that working. is not soluble in water, but in lots of, you know, DMSO and stuff. And this we cannot use in the field either. So I think really having the knowledge of both gives us the advantage that we can in future, create better basic research, more uh, applicable, basically, in science. Sure, definitely. And you mentioned you work with synthetic chemists. How does it work? Is it actually possible for you to reproduce um, certain modifications that are epigenetic modifications completely in vitro from scratch with the chemist? Let's say, how much to the, to the beginning can you go? Like, from how small building blocks can you actually build... The possibilities are, are amazing. Uh, first of all, maybe I will say what my project is about. It's epigenetics and it's to do with uh, active demethylation because we know, of course, we have methylation of cytosine in the DNA. For people who are not uh, familiar with this, this is needed for the cells to be able to differentiate into different lineages. Mm -hmm. uh, different methylation patterns allow certain genes to be active and certain genes to be silent because, of course, Almost all of the cells in our body have exactly the same genome. And they don't need all the 21-something thousand genes at the same time. They just need specific genes to allow them to function properly. So um, people are investigating methylation patterns, but also... There are some people like me who investigate the methylation. Basically, the methylation is never constant. Mm -hmm. It changes. And this is like a you know fresh topic in, in the epigenetic field. So we are not really sure why exactly it happens. Very often it happens in like cancer cells, for example, or when you have differentiation from stem cell to like somatic cell. Yep. And sometimes it happens by the error. Cytosine will get methylated by accident and then you have to revert it back. And sometimes you just need to switch uh, on a gene that was switched off before. And uh, in order to do this, the cell has very complicated mechanism because if it's meant to be like a switch on and off, it would be maybe error prone. Yeah, so it needs more checkpoints. Exactly. So we have a whole cascade of reactions in order to achieve cytosine that is unmethylated again. So we start with methylcytosine, and then there are PET enzymes, which are oxidizing this, this methyl group into hydroxymethylcytosine, and then formocytosine and carboxycytosine. And uh, what happens then, you have one pathway that is very well known already. So you have a TTG enzyme, which directs by fusion reverse. But I'm investigating more like a direct route because a base excision repair, it's a process that is very uh, energetically um, 
demanding from yeah. the cell. And also, during the ER, you have a risk that you will have like double-stranded breaks in the DNA, and this is something you don't want. So we, as scientists, assume that there is another system that allows the cells to the formulator decarboxylate in a way that it will not cause so many issues. We uh, already published two papers on the formulation and the most recent one which came out last week is about decarboxylation because mm -hmm. we think we found the mechanism for this. These events of demethylation, actually how often do they occur, do you know? Like, yeah, like you say, it happens in cancer cells which would suggest that it's not maybe so frequent, but I guess it must be happening in normal somatic cells from time to time as well, right? So basically, yes, it happens everywhere. We just find the very high levels of the, the formulation and this is the methylation in the somatic cells. And of course, in embryonic stem cells, mm -hmm. you have this event of active demethylation where you have this epi epigenetic reprogramming. Of course, yeah. So when your mother is and father's epigenetic marks need to be removed in order for your own ones to appear. So uh, it does happen, but of course it's not this kind of process that we can see like every day happening like crazy mm -hmm. because even the amount of FC in the genome, so formality, is super, uh, super tiny, right? So it's so transient that you cannot catch it. That's what you mean. Exactly. It's really something that we can just assume and postulate because what our lab does is finding the mechanism but the actual biological relevance yeah this is for for more biological labs to, to check you asked before what kind of synthetic uh, tools we yeah. can use in order to to study this of course if fc changes into c we are unable to see it without marking the FC yes. and marking the C. So we know that it comes from exactly from this formal C. So the guys in our lab are synthesizing uh, um, a synthetic labeled nucleoside mm -hmm. that we feed to the cells. By feeding it to the cells and getting it incorporated to the genome uh, and using lumaspec, we are really able to see which C comes from this FC that we fed to the cells. We also need isotopically labeled standards to be able to see it on the on the mastic as well. So this is a lot of like synthetic chemistry. You said yourself you are working on cancer cells. Are you actually looking in in different cell types? Yes, so we went through like loads of different cells because we tried to find the perfect system to study the formulation. Is there a, a model that works really the best for you currently? Did you find it? Uh, there was for the formulation, yes. It doesn't really work out with the decarbox solution, but this is a different story. So the formulation was really a perfect system because, first of all, we, we noticed that some somatic cells that are more like neuronal, like neuroblastoma, for example, um, they deformulate quite a lot. So then we went further and we wanted to see different like neuronal progenitors and stuff. And then we came across those very special IPS cells and they are called INGN. And they are basically neurogenin-inducible IPS cells that were just normal fibroblasts back in the day. Someone reprogrammed them uh, back into the stem cell. And what we are doing is we are converting them in a new way to neurons. And I, I love this process because from those very like fibroblast-looking cells, you have, after a few days, fully grown neurons with very long axons, which are, you know, from one side of the plate to another. And these cells, 
after the second day, they stopped dividing. And this was a perfect uh, situation for us because we could study the formulation happens without diluting our samples. So these cells are good because they stop dividing, but also, I guess, they in general have higher frequency of these events. Is this what yes, you're finding? Exactly. So this is kind of interesting from the functional point of view, because if you consider that neurons are the kind of cells that don't really regenerate or like they, they stop being produced, I I may be going a bit out of line here, but yeah, perhaps this is a way for them to kind of be a bit more adaptable to whatever is happening? Is that something yeah, that you, totally. you think? We know that neurons have quite high methylation levels anyway, higher than usual and uh, higher hydroxymethylation levels as well. So we think it has something to do. I'm, I mean, I'm not a specialist. We have other people in the lab who are specialists in neurons, but we, we think it has something to do with adaptation, maybe memory formation exactly, or something yeah. that is quite demanding and of course we know that plasticity of the brain is something that doesn't happen in any other tissue right what about age of the cells mm -hmm. so is this something that becomes more frequent as the cell becomes older older i mean this i don't, didn't study specifically mm -hmm. because most of the cell lines that we have and we culture anyway have high passage numbers we would have to really have i think more of a patient tissue sample uh, and this is more like translational science which is something that really interests me for the future uh, but we are kind of limited to basic science in the sure. lab that I'm, I'm in at the moment. So coming back to a bit more basic question are there any hotspots that you find mm -hmm. whether it is yeah like you know like CPG islands are very hotspot for methylation is this also happening more frequently there or is it maybe related to some group of genes? Do you have this kind of knowledge already? Maybe it's worth to show the difference between sequencing and aspects because sequencing allows you really to see a whole sequence of the genome from like point A to B. You know exactly what nucleotides are one after the other. But sequencing uh, so far doesn't allow you to see such modifications of cytosine. The most we can do so far is metal cytosine, right? And then by sulfate sequencing, but the rest is really yeah. kind of something that is not that successful yet. And uh, what MASPEC gives you is the uh, more like quantitative uh, data. So basically, you can take your genome, you can chop it into nucleosides, and you can see what's there. How much of the yes. certain modification is in total? Okay. Of course, you can chop your genome and you can just pick up the, the, the points that you want to uh, check, for example, like... Uh, you can enrich it for CPG islands and stuff, but uh, it's still not like... As informative, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this all sounds very interesting, and I guess it must have been quite a big transition. As you mentioned, you had to learn the organic chemistry and you had to change your way of even thinking about nucleic acids in a completely different way. But as you mentioned, it's something that is currently a very hot topic and a very interesting area of research, especially it's a basic research, but it's it's very easily can be taken to the translational research or drug development. Is this something that you are planning to do next? Is this something, is this the direction where you want to go? 
Oh, I hate those kind of questions because I have like tons of ideas for myself, especially at the moment when I'm like almost <laughs> finishing one chapter and just, you know, getting myself ready to start the next one. I never make it easy for me, you know, for myself. And I get very easily bored with stuff. <laughs> and then this. when I'm bored, I'm not so productive. That's why I'm always jumping into deep waters. I must say, I... I don't have like a set idea for myself for a far future. Mm -hmm. I have an idea for another like 10 to 12 months so far. It's a kind of a project that I cannot really talk about publicly yet. And it's something that is not necessarily uh, connected to research because I decided to take a step back in order to really think through what I want to do in life. Because when you are so deeply in your basic research and you're like privating like crazy and you have multiple experiments that didn't work and you always try to find solutions for them you never really have time to think what you want to do next yeah in order to you know to to pursue your further career in science you have to have some ideas so far i won't take a step back Mm -hmm. and i want to spend some time on just really thinking what i like doing what i want to do because during your PhD, you just see one experiment and the next, the next. And whether you like to do it or not, like you just do it, right? You go because through it, yeah. Except this is the next question you want to ask yourself. But also you lose track of what is out there. I feel like mm-hmm. you get so involved into your narrow field of, of working. You get involved in your project. You get more and more committed. Of course, you could see yourself taking the path that is kind of a very conventional path from wherever you are. Like for me, being in developmental biology, I could go into a different model organism, I can go into different questions, but there's a certain path that I could take. And I was super certain I'm going to do it. And now I find myself coming closer to the end that I actually think, okay, maybe I want to do something translational, but I never did it. So how do I go about this? Of course, I know the obvious path, but like there's so many other things out there. And science is moving very fast forward and there's a lot of interesting initiatives happening. So I think that's a good plan. Absolutely. The thing is, when I've been in this lab for so long and I've been working day and night and all the weekends and everything, I stopped having fun uh, just by doing simple experiments. So I won't, you know, miss it a bit maybe. Also, when I look at the, uh, you know, job offers, for example, and the whole list of experience you're supposed to have as a PhD student it's kind of ridiculous this is also wrong thinking so only like a few weeks ago I realized that anyone who comes to our lab as a postdoc is anyway like a new person like you know you may do exactly you may use a different aspect and you still don't know how to use it you need to learn from scratch I think I need few months to work on my own like self-esteem on myself because apart from doing my PhD I've been doing loads of other projects as well I'm going to do something quite exciting and I hope you will find out about this uh, like within you know maybe next six months or so um uh, and I think it's still something like very cool and very uh, very needed for the society but maybe it's not uh, something like a conventional route like you like you mentioned No, but I think if this pandemics have given us anything good, it's actually the realization that a lot of things have can be like shaken at it at their base and they can still survive. Science had to adapt, academia had to adapt, and 
work market had to adapt and suddenly things that were frowned upon are new normality. And I feel like it's good because it's opening up many doors and it's making people a bit more open towards just non-conventional ideas and non-conventional paths. And yeah, good luck for your secret project. Coming back to your gigantic to-do list, I feel like I've I've seen it on your stories at some point. You are actually doing also a master's studies currently, like in addition to your PhD. This is something that I'm doing and I still need one more year to to graduate. And this is also one of the reasons why I don't want to start a very engaging new scientific project because I just want to finish the ones that I started. Probably as a Polish person, you know very well that we have to society like I don't know like this mentality that we need to do everything super fast super early Mm -hmm. we need to graduate before we are even born I think (laughs) I realized that I've been trying to follow this path I really wanted to you know graduate as soon as possible when you try to be so fast and efficient first of all very often you're too young to realize something things just need time especially science time to sink in to make us really you know, to be experienced people. This is something I realized not long time ago, really. You think uh, when you're younger uh, that when you finish all the steps that are waiting for you, that when you graduate, finally you will get this amazing job, will be well paid and, you know, job of your dream. And this is it. And this is how you're going to comfortably live for the rest of your life. And then you can rest. And this is not true because the world is becoming more difficult with those next steps, more competitive, and this is when your energy expenditure starts. So you also had this, like a moment of disillusionment when you said and realized that it's not necessarily that your hard work is going to translate into a very successful career. Because this is something that a lot of my guests are mentioning, a bit of a dream thing situation that we come to academia, we work really hard when we are spending a lot of time in the laboratory or doing our research and then suddenly there's this moment during the PhD when you realize okay I'm doing this but everybody else is also doing it and also it doesn't necessarily mean that those who work the longest hours the hardest or whatever you call it will be the ones that will be the most successful because a lot of things come into play connections you know like personality traits and a lot of random things that you cannot really predict and it's a bit of a soul-crushing moment I must say. I agree with what you said about coming from Poland and feeling like we somehow have this aversion towards doing nothing as it's a bad thing. But another thing that I think is, I don't know if you will agree with me, is that we also have a problem with, yeah, let's call it believing in ourselves in a sense that I don't know if you had this issue when you went abroad, but for me, it was something that was really hitting me hard. I was very afraid that somehow I will be worse than everybody else. And I always was very careful in all of my applications not to oversell myself, trying to be honest. But actually, my supervisor from my master's, we were talking about my applications and she read my letters and she was like, this is all wrong. You have to rewrite it. You have to start believing in yourself and you have to be kind of more bold in your statement. Yeah, this is the story of my life. (laughs) 
I was just like, how do I do this? Because we are not taught this. We are not taught this boldness and this self-belief. And not even mentioning that as female, we are also kind of taught to not be braggy and not putting ourselves out there. This is absolutely true. And I think it's like a systemic problem that starts from the very beginning because... First of all, all the parents want to bring the kids to school as early as possible because people have this idea that if your child finishes school early, then has some advantage in life. And very often those kids, they may fall into so many issues. You know, they may just feel wrong in the wrong place uh, being at school so early that it's basically destroying the whole career. And also we are coming to school and everyone tells us this is like work. We need to just do our homework and and pass the exams with the best grades, which I think is also all wrong because we all know that the exams are just not checking your knowledge at all. And and I think this is the the start because in the US or in England, I know it's like he's our daughter, you can be the next president, you can be anyone you want, you have time to develop. For sure, this is one of the, the, the things that came after, you know, our very difficult history maybe we were basically for for many generations brought up in a very very hard time because of this roughness maybe now we think okay when we have chances we should just go for it and then try and the thing is people then go uh to university just after they finish their high schools to any any kind of course uh and they realize after two years that this is not, not it and, and they, they need to change it. And of course, this is also a moment when they get judged by other people because, oh, how can you be so undecisive? And giving up and, you know, like changing yeah. your mind. And the more <laughs> yeah. we read like uh, about other scientists and other brilliant people, we realize they were like school dropouts or they actually stopped studying a philosophy for 10 years and then came back to study like physics <laughs> and they became like great physicists afterwards. So I think really because of this treatment, then afterwards in our adult life, we don't appreciate ourselves. And this is where you said our CVs don't look as good. Maybe that's why we don't get those jobs or the university positions because uh, we underestimate ourselves yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. And we cannot really say that, oh, we know it all, we, we can learn, we, uh, we are capable of doing all these things. I think in Poland it's very difficult to admit whether it's male or female, I'm good enough. And I can do more, but w- what I already achieved in life, it's, it's already okay. All of it I realized when I moved to England to, to, do, to finish my high school, when I was, you know, doing my usual work and then all people around me were saying oh you're so hard working yeah. like when do you rest and I was like well I rest on holidays like yeah. you know weekends before doing my part-time so, uh, you know how long can you live like this at some point you realize that your health is maybe not so good anymore uh, you have some like stomach issues and manage your stress anxiety and all these kinds of things hitting hard Exactly. And this is where it all happens. Uh, and basically, this is exactly what happens during my PhD. So I made this mistake twice. Of course, I couldn't say no to all other initi- initiatives, uh, whether online or offline. <laughs> and then I realized, now I need to rest. But it's good that you realized this. Honestly, to me, a wake-up call was when I actually got really, really sick. Also because... 
I moved to Austria to study and I was actually in a long distance relationship. So my husband, he was doing a PhD in Poland and I always felt like, okay, he's there. I'm here. The more I work, the faster I'll finish. Or, you know... Yeah, you have time for it because you don't need to see your husband. Also, like, I moved here to do this, so I should really do it. I shouldn't waste my time. And, of course, I was tired, but I was like, okay, well, push through it. And we do like our job. It's not like we don't like it because otherwise we wouldn't do a PhD. But then I get sick and I was like, okay, I have to really reevaluate how to do this. The biggest problem that I have, I think, at, even at this moment, I feel like now that I'm sick, I work even more efficiently with time and productivity that, than before because I don't want to spend too much time to exert myself physically. But on the other hand, I still get into this mindset that somehow I'm being lazy or somehow I'm not doing enough or like you wanted to do a PhD you should be up for whatever comes your way I get into this guilt which is a very stupid thing and mm -hmm. it's very hard to keep yourself in check I feel like talking to people helps because you realize that everybody feels like this but it's a very slippery slope Because you just get into this guilt set and then, okay, I have to make up for it. And it's it's hard to take care of yourself, but take care of your project. And I feel like taking a step back from this kind of work may be good. Also for looking for a job. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the environment that we're working in, you know, this PhD environment is absolutely tough. It's full of very ambitious people who are overworked as much as you, who yeah. have the same uh, ambitions, kind of are weirdos, you know, who tend to overwork themselves. And then we look at our neighbor and we see that she's working like two hours longer yeah. than you and exactly. you already feel guilty, right? And this is very important for future PhD students to look for a lab where your boss is already so clever to not, you know, force you Compare. to work long hours. You know, maybe back in the days, yeah, competitiveness helped. But nowadays, there is absolutely no single discovery or like, a, you know, brand new drug or system which is made without a super interdisciplinary team. And I know they are professors and their group leaders who are now approaching it in a different way. So they have some experience in coaching. They have some experience in real leadership, not like fear leadership. Yeah. I really think the best thing would be for people who want to pursue their, their scientific career further into the PhDs to join a lab for a day or two. Just do like a you know training day and, and see how yeah. many people operate see if people like each other, see if people talk to each other and see how the professor is treating people at the same time. Mm -hmm. Also, a PhD is like real job. You just need to do everything by yourself. Uh, there is no structured programs usually. And this is tough. And nobody is here to tell you, oh, it's really tough. I understand you. No, everyone is like, where are your results? For sure, I think people should really, especially now when it's not that, difficult to get the maybe it's difficult to get the PhD position but at least you have a choice yes <laughs> so yes. it's better to go for maybe a less known professor but someone who will treat you well 
this is what I'm saying. You know, the, the funny thing is anybody who had this kind of experience of having difficult work environment, let's call it like this, I feel like now um, when you make your next step, you're going to be much, much more aware of what you want to have from your next job. And getting into PhD, you still feel like, oh, I get, I get so lucky that I get accepted, you know, I should go there because they want me. And and people just don't realize that, first of all, it's all right to have questions and it's all right to just be a bit more inquisitive about like how the lab situation is, not something offensive. Anybody who's a good PI will understand that actually you want to fit in and you want to see if it's a good fit. And it's beneficial for everybody to to check yes, this and to, to make sure that it's true. I want to talk about your different initiatives and I'm sure we're not going to be able to cover all of them. I'm sorry. I actually encountered you a while, while back when I saw your blog. I rediscovered you on Instagram again, where you actually do a lot of good work getting people acquainted with how scientist life looks like and how scientist work looks like to kind of get the society to, to trust the scientists more, which I think is really an important, very important mission. I would like to start with that and I would like to ask you first, where did this come from? Was it something that you always felt like you want to do? Was it something that was prompted by, I don't know, discussions in the family? Something that happened? How did the idea for this get get born? For for being a science communicator, right? Yes. Oh, this is a... Oh, it brings back really good memories because actually from from very early times of my life. When I just learned the letters, I always uh, wanted to write. I was really, uh, I think I was born to write, basically. <laughs> and I had ambitions to become uh, a journalist, but it never worked out. Yeah, I was stealing, uh, you know, other people's computers just to open like a notepad. And I was typing like kids stories, uh, very basic, uh, additional chapters to Winnie the Pooh or something like this. And since then, I was always into writing, but the idea about the scientific blog or popular science blog, so I really wanted to do it, but I always felt inexperienced enough, of course. I always thought, I don't know enough to be able to write about science. And then I realized, with the help of, of course, people around me, that I probably know more science than like an average human being, even being at the university. I started to write about very like basic things. I started in English. But then I found a niche to really produce something in Polish. And of course, when I started Instagram, oh, that was, it took me a long time to get into Instagram. And of course, it was at the beginning in English as well. And then I switched into Polish and I lost yep. all my followers <laughs> and my motivation went down. Oh, and then geez. I rebuilt it from scratch, basically. So this was something that was in, in, in my mind for a very long time. And I think I have this additional skill for explaining something very easily. At least people say that they understand what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, definitely. I agree. And I like to find metaphors or to be a bit funny. I think it was Richard Feynman, maybe, a famous physicist who said, if you really understand something, you're able to explain it to the five-year-old. 
And this blew my mind because science is not that hard. And of course, now because of pandemic, more people are anyway interested in science. And I think this is a good time for us, uh, you know, communicators to get out and yeah. reach out and, and explain stuff. I think anyone is able to understand our basic ideas of, of what we are doing. They don't need to know the details. It's good if they understand what medicine and science look like nowadays. So I think this is maybe causing a fear, fear from unknown. And by bringing the science closer to them, making it more available, understandable, we are breaking, first of all, first eyes with yes. them. We are breaking the fear. And we are becoming like normal human beings because <laughs> me, myself, I thought a scientist is someone who is like always closed somewhere and wants to take advantage of everyone and rule the world. And the truth is, we are not like this. We are just normal <laughs> people. What really uh, made me realize science is amazing is the approach of all the professors from Nottingham University, my first uni, to lecturing. I was mind blown how passionate those people are. Really, like I've never seen someone who would explain like very basic genetics, like, you know, boring genetics. They do it in such a way that you just want to stand up and be like, oh my God, like this is all, all I want yeah. to do for the rest of my life. And they really, maybe a bit falsely, but showed me like how amazing the science is without showing me the dark side. Um, but it helped me to realize I'm in the right place. And I wish everyone to basically experience this kind of lectures in their lives because I felt like everything is interesting because they showed it in interesting way to us. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, this this was like this whole passion, this big like love to explain someone because I, I like writing and talking and especially when I can feel like I'm being able to explain it in a way that someone is trusting you, that this is really true what you're saying, this is perfect. But this is actually not an easy thing to do, which is why I, I've been really impressed with, with your work. The thing that I find particularly difficult nowadays is that people believe Facebook more than they believe, let's call it, experts. And it can come from the fact that the experts are not using the right language. But it also comes from the fact that people are just more keen on trusting some weird source. To me, it gets very discouraging sometimes. Like, of course, when I talk to my family and friends, and especially now at times of pandemics, we've had countless discussions about several things. It gets frustrating at times because you try to get very basic and explain things. But you somehow lose credibility, especially with your close ones. Like somehow they don't see you as this expert. Also, yeah, it's it's very hard to, to put it in the right way and to really get the message across. And I think, yeah, we as scientists should be doing this. But I think you also have this like skills that make it a bit easier. You not only do the blog, but you also were writing for the Forbes. And now you had the ebooks, which I also would like to touch upon, even though they are in Polish. I was very impressed that you managed to do it during your PhD to write two ebooks that are... One of them is about cancer. The other one is about COVID pandemics. So this is the more recent one. What I find particularly interesting about this is that it's written in a way that makes it easy for really anybody to understand how 
the cancer develops or how this mechanism functions. It's a fantastic thing. I guess it must have been very difficult to conceive it in this way. Also, I feel like the illustrations were helpful. I've had several people in my close proximity who had become sick with cancer and it's always a problem to even understand what their doctors are saying. And it's not Mm -hmm. the fault of the doctors. I mean, it partially is in a way that they all use all of these words and, you know, they talk about markers and no one knows what it means. And I think this kind of resources are super important. I'm very impressed that you managed to, to get this to work and also to get this to be so not scary, because that's another thing. You take the topics that are inducing a lot of fear in people. It's very difficult to write it in a way that will not make people more fearful. I was wondering how your process looked like. Was it something that you had in your mind already for some time, especially from your discussions with other people? Or was it something that was kind of evolving slowly into into what happened in the end? How did this work? Because to me, this is very, very impressive. And this is something that I'm very... Yeah, curious about. First of all, Kasia, thank you so much because hearing it from a developmental biologist who really knows what cancer is, it's, it's amazing. So I'm, I'm feeling super grateful. Um, yes, maybe let's start from I always try to to explain difficult things to myself first. Mm-hmm. And if I'm 100% sure, I understand it. And maybe that's why also my learning and studying takes so long. And when I understand it, then I always try to find a system to explain it to someone else. And mm-hmm. this is always happening under the shower, I promise. So I would have this idea and thinking like, hmm, how can I explain that, you know, there is not a single drug for a cancer mm-hmm. because cancer is a whole lot of like 200 different diseases, right? And then I'm leaving this topic, but after five days under the shower, I realized, okay, <laughs> let's let's make this metaphor with an umbrella of having it as another word that everyone understands. Okay, infection. Everyone knows that infection is actually a word that explains any type of infection from like parasites, bacteria, viruses, and it can happen anywhere in your body. It can make you feel like you have a flu or it can make your skin go go weird. I actually try always to find some kind of comparisons from uh, situations that more people understand. And I think Neil deGrasse Tyson does it very well. (laughs) And by reading people who were in my life idols in, in science, so like Neil or Richard Dawkins and his selfish gene, or even James Watson. He also wrote about genetics in a way that I understood it being still in high school. I kind of started thinking in the same way. How can I explain it so anyone can understand? And the ebook was meant to be a guidebook for patients and also for their families, right? Yes. And there is nothing about uh, grading or about severity of a disease, but there are very basic information that without those, you're not even able to understand what doctor says. Exactly. And then you know what you want to ask about, which I find exactly. very helpful in this book. And uh, I, I love cancer. I mean, it sounds 
awful, but I really like genetics of cancer. And yeah, because my, my passion to cancer was so strong, I, I realized I need to write something. And also I went from my own, uh, you know, issues because I had a breast tumor that was removed and yeah. it was like pretty huge one. So it stopped me from working for a while. And then I realized, oh my God, what happens in my head is nothing in comparison to what happens to the, to the girl who has no, no idea, idea about yeah. breast cancer and is just like flooded with this information online. And I found a publisher who was very happy to do it in the way I really wanted. So I really tried to give people the very basic and merging this with real life situations and with real life things that you can do, basically. So it's not like we're all going to die of cancer. There are things that we can do to minimize the risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's super important resource. For Polish listeners, I really recommend you have a look at, at the book. As you mentioned, it's not only good for people who get sick, but also for their families to understand it better, what is happening, to understand how it works and how it it appears. Yes, it's it's a sad thing, but also it happens all around us that we're really supposed to be equipped with this knowledge. We live in the world that, you know, every uh, other of us will get cancer at some point. So yeah. maybe it's better to know about this before and know how to prevent it. And this is the same thing what happened when I was writing COVID ebooks. First of all, for a year and a half, I was really just kind of showing my knowledge and researching all the news coming from COVID, looking for really like the, the most recent papers and showing to people in like an easy to digest way. Yes. And I wanted to close everything that I touched upon in a one book of some sort. And the same publisher just like agreed to, to do mm -hmm. this again with me. We published this uh, ebook on COVID. First of all, because the questions that people were asking me, I know they are coming from they're not understanding the basics yeah. of immunology. How the vaccines work, how the virus reproduces, all of these things. Exactly. 50% of people out there don't even understand what's the difference between bacteria and the virus. It's a very important thing to actually understand why we need certain ways of protecting ourselves because we cannot use antibiotics for COVID. People don't know, but they still form opinions. And this is the dangerous part because you're supposed to base in your opinions on some kind of facts, some kind of knowledge. If you don't have this knowledge, yeah. your opinion is just someone else's opinion repeated. It's okay if it happens uh, that you get your opinion from someone who is actually knowledgeable. But if you get it from someone who is just showing some kind of emotional post on Facebook, this is not good because you can self-harm by not vaccinating yourself. Definitely. Because you didn't have enough knowledge. It's basically a guide of how to understand pandemic and also a book that you can use for any future pandemics with viruses in <laughs> included. Which are going to happen. Yeah, maybe not to the scale, but I mean, we've had several in the last years. It's not only COVID that happened. Yeah, small outbreaks will happen, yeah, for sure. Exactly. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go as also the density of people, population increases. So now I want to go to the more classical questions. You are working really hard, both working in your lab as well as doing all of the freelance stuff, the Instagram, the popular science, the psychom. I wonder how do you still keep your work-life balance in check? 
So what do you do <laughs> to still have some time to your, for yourself, to still have some time for your close ones, for your fiancé, and to not get all worked up in this? Because I must say, I'm just juggling PhD in the podcast. And sometimes it feels like it's a lot. And it's just these two things. So, yeah. It comes from the times when I used to be a Christian writer. I think this allowed me to train a lot of discipline in myself. And also different people pursue resting or relaxing in different ways. I cannot really say that some of my activities that I'm doing, I perceive as work and something that I need to rest afterwards. For example, what I'm doing on Instagram, I know some people treat it as work. But for me, three times. I have the system of working that I spend 45 minutes on doing something and then I change because my brain gets tired and I'm not so productive anymore. So I'm doing my Instagramming, for example, during this like five, 10 minute break between one task and another. With time, I just became quite efficient with doing even a couple of sentences of one post and then moving on to the next thing and coming back to it when I have time. Of course, there are times that I was super tired just all the time. And for me, it was a great achievement if I managed to do just like basic stuff together with work. And sometimes I'm also working in the lab from nine till midnight and I don't have time for it, right? But I think I always try to have a bit discipline in me mm -hmm. uh, and also the way how I'm spending my free time I try to do it actively let's say so for example I live long distance with my fiance so when I have a weekend that I'm not spending in the lab I would drive there it's six hours so during the six hours I would listen to podcasts to you know to do stuff from my to-do list uh, and still this is a fun thing because you can listen to podcasts it's nothing like super tough, right? Driving is not so tough on the German motorway. And then I arrive there and I always try to have enough sleep. Like this is my, oh my God, this is my holy grail. I always try to sleep <laughs> enough. Some seasons, maybe within a year, I can do it with like six uh, hours of sleep, but some it's eight. And I think because I sleep well, then I'm basically more more active during the day. Yeah, and I don't eat so many sweets because when I eat sweets, I actually can see that I'm less productive. So really, I'm trying to look after myself in a way that I tell other people to look after. That's good, <laughs> <So>. yeah. <laughs> and when I'm feeling tired and I know, okay, this is the time when I'm supposed to keep my balance and rest, I would go for a walk or a run or a jog, depending on how well I feel. And it's still resting because yeah. my brain rests. But realizing it in your life, the earlier you do, the better probably. What you have to do is really set up your priorities, right? Because when you have so many tasks, you have to really choose the ones that are the most important. And those you will do during, during the day and the rest when you have time or not. Really listen to your body. My life work balance, maybe it's not perfect for some. But I think I'm feeling the best when I'm actually actively seeing my friends, visiting my family, spending time with my horses. I do a lot of stuff that I don't share on Instagram, maybe. People don't know that, you know, I'm crazy about my horses so much. But this is time when I have my phone in my pocket, hidden. Yeah, you know, and I don't to use unplug it. and just enjoy it. Exactly. I think people just tend to waste time a lot. And this is something I cannot afford because it's a sinusoid, right? Mm -hmm. So when you feel good and you're on the top of the things, you can do everything More, you want. Yeah. But there will be times, there will be months when you feel worse 
And then you just do half of your to-do list and it's still fine because it's anyway a big to-do list, right? So I let myself um, rest whenever I need, but I try to use the, 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 the energetic times, uh, you know, in the best way possible. You know, I was like this for most of my life. I would just really do a lot. I was I would be in the lab, but then I would do some online courses at home. I had always something happening. What I find particularly challenging for me now that I'm sick is that my body, it's like sabotaging me all the way. And this is a very difficult for me to adjust because I was doing so much and now suddenly not only I have to do less, which is something that you can adapt to, but it's just like I have sometimes no idea which day is going to be a good and which day is going to be a bad day. And it's really frustrating. I feel like I will adjust to this. But hearing you, I can hear, I can see myself in this being very dynamic and being very organized. And currently I'm going through this phase of I really don't manage to do all the things that I want to do. Yeah, the most important is to adjust and adapt to what your body is telling you. Yeah. Because, you know, when I was like recovering from the operation, of course I couldn't move much. But I was feeling, okay, I cannot lie in bed because it makes me just depressed. And then I was asking my, my boyfriend back then uh, to just go, you know, cross-country skiing with me. And of course I didn't run, but I was just like super slowly, like go around mountains and just look around and just get my energy out of nature. And those little activities, you know, you remind your brain that you don't have to go for a run if you don't have energy for it. You can go for a walk. I'm starting to treat my body as my best friend. And in the past, I treated my body as something I can use, you yeah. know, like a tool. I'm still in to a frenemy kind of phase, you know. Like, <laughs> I mean, I know that I will get there. It's just, it's a, it's a big adjustment. You know, this body helps you to achieve so much, and now your body needs to rest. It's completely new. And then you just don't know yet how to sometimes read what happens. I feel like I'm currently in this stage. Okay, I have three last questions. I always like to ask about room for improvement in science. Yeah, I was quite surprised how broad my guest answers are. But on the other hand, every one of us has a thing that is particularly important to us that we find particularly, I don't know, timely or or just personally touching. So what would you think for you is something that needs to be improved, needs to be changed, either in science in general or, you know, in academic world or in PhD world? What would you say is something that you find particularly in need of improvement? I don't even know where to start. I would improve everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> First of all, I think university labs should be more like companies because it bugs me so much that we spend hours in pipetting and doing things manually and then in the company they have a robot. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's known that in academia it's never going to be so fast and so efficient. But I think we should take more from the companies that we do actually. Even looking at the yeah, looking at the PIs, if they become more like bosses in in, in companies uh, who are first of all accountable, mm -hmm. who need to 
be still trained into how to be a good leader and a boss. And they need to take care of their workers because they are checked if they do things yeah. properly. And they're also rated by their workers. Uh, it will be completely different because we wouldn't have the situations that some people are like out there because they have a big surname, but actually they're like very nasty people. So this and also some kind of initiatives towards PhDs, uh, like companies take towards their workers, for example, space to just rest during the day. And also in some universities, it already happens, but I think not in the one I'm at the moment, that people are collaborating a lot with themselves. Labs which are in one department. Seriously, we don't need so many equipment per each lab. We could share some things, right? I think science would end up somewhere else if people were just talking to each other, not competing with each other, yeah, but actually definitely. like talking. And there should be well-known papers with negative results. Seriously, results that never were drugs that were checked. So that we don't waste time repeating these things. Yeah, the clinical trial didn't work. We put it in this paper and it's still a publication because we tried. We spent time on it because we make the same mistakes over and over again because nobody managed to write anywhere that this doesn't work, you know? Yes. I mean, it's so, starting, yeah, yeah, yeah. but... It's never going to be... Uh, it should be compulsory. It would save money, it would save time. It, in a big scheme of things, moving science forward, this could help save time. Yeah, we wouldn't be so blind anymore. Yeah. No, I think this is important. Like everything that you said, some of these things were brought up before, especially the collaborative nature of research. We should go away from our own egos and, you know, thinking that we have to be the best as a unit and just thinking a bit more about how much more you could do if you didn't have to, let's say, learn all of the technical skills, but you could ask someone who is much better than you can do it faster and just collaborate and, and move forward. I definitely agree. I mean, accountability of PIs. This hasn't been brought up here, but this is something that when I talk to my friends and a lot of different PhD students, it gets brought up a lot. I mean, we had recently this example of of a very prominent PI being, you know, released from his position. But, I mean, we start having these things. Like, I've heard that in US they were revoking grants for people who have been found to have some sort of mobbing issues with their workers. And stepping out even from this... I feel like at universities there is lack of structures that would provide enough support for mm -hmm. people to come forward when there is such a situation that needs help. There is not enough sure. structures to, first of all, to just feel safe to come forward. Yeah, uh, we don't have anywhere to go. Yeah, to also really? feel like this is okay to say that something is wrong, where you feel like I'm just a PhD student. What can I do? Mm -hmm. And this is this big person, and and when you okay. feel like there is no support, it's just it's a very difficult fight or like struggle that you kind of have in you to to do this. Yeah, the whole system would have to be changed because you know, in a different union, not in my union, my friend has now an issue that after three years she needs to change her PhD lab 
because she knows some things are just very not right in the lab, and then there is no system for her to escape. So I think it's it's very complicated, and there are some countries and some universities that have very good structure, like Nottingham. I cannot imagine a PI in the in the UK asking me, you know, when I want to get pregnant or things like this. Uh, and here, I think it's just an everyday life and then people live with it. And I'm like, well, this is not correct. It should be changed. But who wants to um, risk their position to start changing something? You exactly. Know, like, exactly. And how high can you get? I mean, who it's a systemic, systemic issue, right? Okay, moving forward to... The last part, it's the part that I called cool science. One thing is if you had unlimited amount of money and you could just study whatever you want or you could have the technology that you want. What is something that you find particularly interesting and something that you would like to try to do? Yes, I think I would go for deep cancer genetics. I would like to research exact changes that happen during the development of any, mm-hmm. if we are going so far with unlimited amount of money, yeah. then I would say any cancer, and then maybe reverting it back, right? So some kind of genetic tool and knowledge to be able to revert or stop the processes uh, coming. Because we know that cancer is basically this one mutation too many in the cell, and to stop this at least this yeah. one last mutation would be already amazing. So for sure something deep in cancer. And I don't think I would ever go so far away from research topics that I'm already covering uh, because I just find it so fascinating, yeah. right? So something like uh, alongside medicine, cancer and um, genetics uh, is just so unknown still to us that it would be nice to finally find out more things. Yeah, it sounds really cool. You would need a lot of money, so... Definitely. (laughs) Okay, so last question is the question about the dinner. I don't know if you've heard it on the podcast, but if you could have dinner or coffee with someone that was an inspiration to you or you find particularly interesting and you would just like to chat, it can be someone that is still living or no longer living, who would it be? A scientific part of me really wants to see... Marie Curie, uh, because she's been my biggest life inspiration in terms of like female scientists. My second name is, is Maria because of Maria. My mom mm, studied chemistry as well, but uh, in a technical school, and like she was also amazed by by Maria Curie, and so she named me after her. And I just would like, really would like to talk to someone who managed to get so many Nobel Prizes and, <laughs> you know, has so many ideas. And, you know, what amazes me, she had a lab next to her house. It's nothing, yeah. um, a big institute and stuff. And non-scientific parts of me would really, really love to have a coffee with my already dead grandfather because I feel like I lost him too early. Mm-hmm. And there was still so much to discover. And I think the older I am, 
the more I feel like I was just too young to understand him. And he was basically the person who taught me how to read, what to read. Mm -hmm. He used to read the newspapers and then highlight the stuff that should be interesting to me and pass it on to me. And he always had just like very, very intelligent conversations. And when I didn't understand, you know, he, he used to be a, more like a humanist person. So psychology, history, mm -hmm. uh, geography was his main like uh, field when I didn't understand like oh grandfather who Churchill is he used to like draw me the mm -hmm. story of, of Churchill on the uh, so cool on the desk and show it to me and I think I was just too young to realize how much of a you know knowledge source and life experience he is holding on to Uh, before he can share it all with me. And I didn't appreciate it at times, I must say. I was just too young. And I was always like, uh, he is very talkative and like, come on. And now I think, wow, yeah. and you know, like I'm, I'm actually renovating a house where he used to live. And uh, we are going to move in. Oh, soon. that's nice. And to me, it's such a turnover, you know, life makes circles all the time. You know, his death um, made me drop horse riding and start thinking about university studies for real. And this is why I left to England. This was a huge uh, event in my life. And I think now I would just like, I would love to talk to him and, and be this, you know, person who can also bring something from me to, to, to him. Yeah, I'm sure he would love to have this kind of conversation with you, you know. I can understand this. I think partially me, I've lost several people when I was young also very close like I lost my mom when I was just 12 and you know just to imagine like when you're 12 what would you like talk to your mom about like some stuff but there's so many things that I would like to actually bring up right now and just see what she would think about yeah I think it would be cool for you and he would definitely be proud that you went this path as much as your mom about you yeah Yeah, maybe those stories, you know, shape us in the way we are. But actually, out of all those amazing, bright minds I could talk to, I think those close people are, like, just the most... Um, of course. They're It's, the most precious. Thank you for your honesty. And thank you for sharing so much about your, your science. I mean, it's clear that you are passionate, not only about your own work, but just, like, science in general. And I'm... Also very appreciative of all of the work that you do to to make science more accessible to general public and to people. And I'm very glad that, yeah, we can share a bit about you with other people out there. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you very much for inviting me. And I hope uh, scientists and non-scientists will, will enjoy this podcast. I know... At times, it was hard to maybe understand for people who are not sciencey. But our work, both of us, is also to support other scientists. So I hope maybe it will give a lot of motivation and uh, inspiration to future generations. I'm generation. sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. 